Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Tony Ganser, the afternoon host for Northeast Ohio NPR station, WCPN Idea Stream. It's April 13th and you're joining a virtual City Club forum. Thanks for being here. The crisis in Venezuela has been making headlines for years. Unsustainable economic practices compounded by Nicolas Maduro's authoritarian reign have created the perfect storm for a national catastrophe. It's inspired vast demonstrations throughout the country, uniting people of all walks of life against corrupt institutions that threaten their stability and well-being. This ongoing humanitarian and political crisis in Venezuela was captured in the documentary A La Calle to the Streets, now screening as part of the 45th annual Cleveland International Film Festival. The film tells the story of the Venezuelan people's attempts to reclaim their country's democracy. Today, we'll talk with the documentary filmmaker and individual uh, film featured in the film about the magnitude of the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela and its implications for everyday Venezuelans and global citizens. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions and we hope you do. You can text them to 330-541-5794, the number on your screen, 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. I will try to work them in. I have the screen ready to go. Now for today's speakers, joining us today, Max Caicedo is one of the two directors and producers of A La Calle. He's also co-founder of Vitamin Productions, a digital production company. A La Calle is his first feature a documentary. He's a second-generation Colombian-American. Max studied at Tufts University, where he received his B.A. in political science and English literature. Max, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And also joining us is Tamara Tarasuk Bruner. She's acting deputy director of the America's Division for Human Rights Watch. She's been covering Venezuela for that organization for over a decade. Tamara is also a native of Venezuela, but grew up in Argentina. She studied law at Torquato di Tella University. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for the invitation. Happy to be here with you. Great. So before we start our conversation, I thought it would be great to just take a look at a clip from the film. There are so many threads to pull in this conversation, but maybe just give a, a taste of what is in this uh, powerful film. La crisis en Venezuela de salud es algo que afecta al país completo. Eso genera una impotencia y una tristeza enorme porque tú como médico sientes y sabes que tú puedes ayudar a esa persona pero tienes las manos atadas porque no cuentas con los recursos. Mira, en Venezuela no hay medicina. 85% de las medicinas para enfermedades crónicas no se consiguen. Nosotros tratamos de que nos manden todas esas cosas de afuera porque es muy difícil tener acceso a ello. Bueno, esta caja llegó hoy de Colombia y nos mandaron antibióticos y antihipertensivos que era lo que más necesitábamos ahorita en la semana que viene nos llegan como 800 kilos de medicinas de España y todavía hay más medicinas allá pero hay que mandarlas con cautela por el tema de la aduana y además porque es súper costoso el envío básicamente depende de cuánto vayamos usando de cuánto vayamos donando al hospital cuánto usamos en las jornadas, etc. nosotros no podemos mantener el sistema de salud de un país that's a clip from Alakaye with a filmmaker Max Caicedo. And Max, this is a humanitarian, uh, a political crisis in Venezuela that's been going for years. Maybe can you start by telling us why you picked this section of Venezuela's uh, history to document and uh, what you were trying to accomplish uh, with your film in particular? Well, that's a difficult question. I think one of the main reasons we chose, or this uh, section of time was what we wanted to focus on uh, was, two, was two things. One, in part, um, the executive producer, Greg Little, he 
was interested in telling partly the story of Leopoldo Lopez and um, and what was going on currently in Venezuela. So, you know, given when we started speaking in 2016, 2014 started to seem like the beginning of that story and then moving on into the future because as it's a documentary and as it was an unfinished story and still is, um, we were just continuing to document it until we felt that we had found a logical or a reasonable ending point. Um, so it was partly in, as a result of, of Greg Little, uh, our executive producer and the vision that he had for it. And I think Nelson and I, when we got down to trying to understand what we should focus on, um, I think a lot of people find it's very difficult to talk about Venezuela now uh, without discussing Hugo Chavez, but, and, and, that, and he's a very polarizing figure, uh, both internationally and within Venezuela, obviously. So that was something, a conscious decision that we had to decide whether or not we wanted to include a lot of what happened on, under Hugo Chavez in our film, or if we wanted to focus more post Chavez and on Maduro. And I think what we ended up doing is focus, deciding is to focus more on post Chavez on Maduro um, and viewing it as a separate chapter and looking at um, not just what's going on now, more from a humanitarian perspective and obviously a slightly from a political perspective, but more in the wake of Hugo Chavez and what the legacy he has left um, has led to more than Chavez himself. And so those considerations, I think, were the biggest things in kind of focusing on where we were at. Uh, 2014 was obviously a pivotal year, both internationally and, uh, and domestically within Venezuela, as tar in terms of um, a flashpoint that uh, got a lot of international um, attention. And it was also obviously a pivotal moment for one of our primary characters, Leopoldo Lopez. So that's um, that seemed like a good place to start uh, in telling the story uh, of what was going on. So maybe uh, set it up. Uh, you mentioned uh, Leopoldo Lopez. I was going to mention him a little later, but um, uh, why don't you remind us of who he is and how powerful an opposition figure he has been in Venezuelan politics? Absolutely. Um, Leopoldo Lopez is, he's also a very divisive figure, I guess now more so, but historically he was one of the most outspoken um, critics of Hugo Chavez and subsequently uh, Nicolas Maduro. He founded um, and led the party Voluntad Popular for many years and leading into um, the elections post Chavez was one of the presidential candidates along with Henry Capiles. Unfortunately, because of his um, outspokenness as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a critic of both um, the Maduro regime and of Chavez, he was disqualified from running for um, president and holding any public office as a result, kind of had to sit on the sidelines a little bit. Um, but in 2014, it uh, was a big year um, because that was when the economic crisis of Venezuela was so, was becoming very well pronounced. The fall in the price of oil and everything was becoming uh, impossible to ignore. And, and so Leopoldo Lopez, unable to really find any other way for, um, for protest or or to to reasonably um, voice concerns because of he was um, stymied electorally, called for massive um, protests along with the student movement of that time. Um, there had been a lot of violence in Venezuela going into 2014, and many students had been um, endangered. The future of the country, lack of jobs, caused a large student movement around universities to start um, growing, and Leopoldo Lopez uh, became a part of that. And his actions basically calling for large-scale peaceful protests around the country led to his eventual incarceration um, at the hands of Nicolas Maduro's government. And that was a big deal because he, if you look at what ended up happening, why he was imprisoned and why he was ultimately convicted, it was, I can't, I don't actually can't recite verbatim what it was, but it was basically using the subliminal power of his words to incite violence, which for a lot of people uh, internationally and obviously domestically seems kind of weird, seems like what you're really doing is um, imprisoning someone for uh, using free speech. And if you look at a lot of the footage from that day, he was advocating peaceful protest, even though violence did break out. Um, but it was, it's been a very popular and well-documented that was more on behalf of the um, oppression and repression by state forces. 
So he was a prisoner, a political prisoner, starting from that event in 2014, from those protests, and um, and yeah, he 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 suffered pretty brutally at the hands of the Maduro regime over the course of our documentary. You get to see a little bit into that, the impact on his wife and his family, and uh, and how that ends up teasing out moving into 2018, 2019. And the film shows him as a political prisoner, also as a someone who's trying to stay engaged, even as a political prisoner in uh, the reform movement in Venezuela. Uh, Tamara, um, even though Hugo Chavez, as Max says, is not a uh, primary figure in this, it's difficult to talk about the current state of Venezuela without looking at the time under Chavez, that Venezuela being more or less a petrol state, uh, Hugo Chavez's policies of, of um, social welfare and subsidies being funded by that, but there was a lack of structural reform in Venezuela, which causes shortages once the price of oil falls. So you've got this humanitarian crisis, which is documented, uh, uh, difficulty getting food, hyperinflation, um, just everyday life becomes difficult. And then you have a tightening regime from the political side too. So can you talk about how these go hand in hand uh, for, for the situation everyday Venezuelans had to live through? Sure, so you're absolutely right. You can't talk about Venezuela without thinking and understanding what happened before Maduro. Um, and I would say that a key element of this is understanding that the erosion of the most basic democratic guarantees started a long time ago. Actually, in 2004, when Chavez was in power, together with his allies at the National Assembly, which is Venezuela's Congress, they decided to take over the Supreme Court. And that, which might sound very academic and a little bit boring, what actually made was a situation in which the executive started to be able to commit abuses without any internal checks on its power. Um, and that, as I said, started a long time ago, and it was gradual. And at the very beginning, it was very hard to explain, you know, what is actually happening. But what happened in 2004 was that the Supreme Court, which had 20 people, became a Supreme Court of 32. The Chavez administration packed the Supreme Court, and with that packed Supreme Court, that trickled down into the entire judiciary. And without an independent judiciary, Chavez began to take over other spaces of political and free speech generally. So there were limits to a free press, limits to, you know, you were talking earlier about Leopoldo Lopez, but it was not just Lopez. A lot of political opposition members were not able to run for office because they were disqualified. NGOs were subject to legislation that didn't allow them to exercise their monitoring role independently. So all of this went on very slowly under Chavez, and it has dramatically intensified under Maduro. So we didn't see under Chavez the amount of allegations of extrajudicial killings, torture, arbitrary arrests that we're seeing today. But Maduro is able to do that because the system was prepared for that and allowed him to do that. And that comes long before he took power as Chavez's hand-picked successor. So let's remember that when Chavez was dying, he actually said Maduro should be his successor. And his first elections were very controversial and he ended up taking power after these very contested elections. In, in terms of the humanitarian side of things, um, you're, you're right that Chavez was able to deliver social aid to people in need that for many, many years had been forgotten by the Venezuelan political establishment. And he was able to do that because he had money from the oil sector. But the big problem was that he didn't invest in the infrastructure. So he didn't put money in the public health system and hospitals. He created parallel missions to provide health support. And what happened was that eventually when they ran out of money, there was no investment in the infrastructure that was needed for these services and rights to be accessible to people in the medium and long term. So when they ran out of money, 
they were unable to continue providing these basic services. And there are other reasons why in Venezuela we are seeing a humanitarian emergency. Um, but you know, going back to your first question, I think it's important to understand that any film that talks about the situation in Venezuela today needs to talk about the humanitarian emergency because Venezuela is, I would say, the only country in Latin America where you see this level of humanitarian need that is produced by a man-made crisis. Max, one part of the film uh, that I, I found very powerful was some people might think a boring part about electoral manipulation, but using the clap boxes, these boxes mm -hmm. of aid uh, from the Maduro regime, uh, holding those out uh, to people if they show their ID cards, which you have to show to be able to vote. So then you're tying aid with the ability to vote. And it's kind of... Um, I guess it's coercion. That <laughs> I can't think of another word, but it seems like that's what's going on, that you're tying the ability for people to eat even a little bit of food um, to having to reveal themselves to, to the government and how they might vote. Can you talk about that kind of manipulation of using the humanitarian crisis that Tamara is talking about uh, while bolstering the regime's power? Yeah, that's a that's a big that's a big subject, and I think that discussing the clap boxes at the same time that you say that you mentioned the clap boxes, you have to discuss the sort of terror campaign with just sort of arbitrary detentions and torture. You also have to discuss or, or mention um, the uh, narrative that goes about uh, international interference. Um, I think one thing that you can look at when you look at both Chavez and Maduro and Epesu, the party in general, is that they're very strong and very powerful storytellers. They have a narrative that they understand and have been telling for a very long time. And any and they use many things with all, all assets within their power to continue developing and shaping a narrative um, that basically says, we're the only ones looking out for you. Every time something goes wrong, it's because of another bad actor. You know what I mean? trust us, work with us, you know, but at the same time, you know, be vigilant of all your neighbors because we don't know what's happening. You know what I mean? Because, you know, the spies are every sort of, so to speak. And so I think part of what you're discussing, the clap boxes, uh, registering where to vote, registering how to vote, all these things are part of a system that's sort of designed to um, more or less, uh, like you say, uh, coerce people into voting a particular way, um, but also being afraid or being hypervigilant around of people outside of them who might be, you know, working on from external actors. You know, I think it's really hard right now, and this is kind of a segue, but it's really hard right now because of America and the Western's history, long history of intervention in both Central and Latin America, um, that when he, when Chavez or when Maduro invokes these things, it's hard to say, oh, there's nothing to it, you know what I mean? Because there's such a strong history there. How can you, anyone in their right mind who can acknowledge what has happened in the past say, oh, well, I guess that is possible. And so because of that, their narrative and their story um, is very powerful, um, especially toward um, people who or who were, who've been who were alive during that period, you know what I mean? Who were alive during the period of, of, of massive intervention. So. So yeah, it's all part of that. And I think it's it's really difficult right now. And this is part of the problem I think Tamada discusses is the obfuscation of fact, the obfuscation of what's actually going on intentionally being done by the regime and being done by the various tactics that they have. Because from an international perspective, from an NGO perspective, you know, oftentimes everything you have to do, all the data and all the information of what's actually going on is done clandestinely under the radar you know, you have to take all these sort of official reports that are given to you with a grain of salt. And so, and so you're basically, you have a situation where there's clearly coercion, there's clearly tactics of terror being used to manipulate and to, and to force a certain um, docility within the population. But it's also really hard to know where that begins and where that ends because of how unclear and how um, obfuscated everything is starting to become and has been intentionally made. Um, so I think the clap boxes, you know, that scene, in addition to the stacking of the Supreme Court, in addition to Nixon's story, who's um, just a regular student protester who, 
you know, yeah, he was out there protesting and those protests, you know, became less than, you know, perfectly peaceful. You know, the, the, you could argue that the, I think the security forces actions and that had more to do with that than the protesters, but it's all, but, um, if you look at these cases, you know, they're like Nixon, all he did was protest. They arrest him randomly. They don't really even charge you with anything. You know what I mean? They don't really necessarily say that you've done this or that. Maybe they'll mention terrorism, but the idea is just to create this overwhelming sense of fear and insecurity. Um, and that, you know, makes people feel like it's too scary to speak out, too scary to, to vote against the government. When it really comes down to it, if it's between surviving or, you know, voting, you know, you're conscious, a lot of people will choose to survive, you know, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's something we have to consider when looking at a lot of the information that we see in a lot of the voting and election results is like, well, you have people voting their hearts, but you also have people voting their stomachs and their lives, you know, um, and that's, um, that's really scary. And it makes it really hard to get a clear picture of what's going on down there. When Maduro loses uh, support in the National Assembly, or better said, maybe people vote for other parties, um, Maduro takes a page out of the Chavez handbook, as you mentioned, uh, Tamara, packs the court and then begins to rule by decree. And there is a a pushback from the National Assembly to um, elect as president, its president, Juan Guaido, which is a name perhaps uh, many of us have heard before, even casual observers of Venezuela. Uh, and there's this renewed energy behind regime change. Uh, Guaido is recognized by, I think, 50 countries as an interim president on the way to uh, free and fair elections. Uh, but this is not a a promised land. This is not the end of the story. Can you talk about what happens after that that moment of the National Assembly trying to assert itself? I don't know who's more willing to take that question, uh, which is not an easy question, Tommy, because, um, look, I think it's important to understand that the Maduro regime tried for a long time to keep a democratic facade. So they tried to pretend that there actually was a division of power, that you had a judiciary that did its job, that you had a national assembly that was functioning. But what he did before Guaido was actually to create a parallel constituent assembly, they called it. What they wanted was to, in theory, they said they wanted to draft a new constitution. Um, but then they created this parallel legislature that actually legislated. Whatever, whenever they needed a Congress, they used their allies in the Constituent Assembly and tried to sideline the National Assembly because the, le the latest sort of free and fair elections were in December 2015 when the opposition won a vast majority of the National Assembly. Um, and, and that's the context in which the fight started to happen it, that led to Guaido taking over as president of the National Assembly and this constitutional interpretation that he had become the interim president of Venezuela because Maduro's mandate had expired because he never won the 2018 election. So there was a vacuum of power and the constitution of Venezuela allowed him to take over as interim president. Um, the interesting thing about the way Guaido appeared in the scene is that for the first time in a long time, the opposition united behind one same figure. And that was an inspiring moment for a lot of people because it went hand in hand with the massive protests on the street, people wanting to actually do something about this. But it was very hard because you, you don't have two people sitting at a negotiating table on equal grounds. That's the key thing that's happening here. So when you want to pretend that there's a mediation between a, an opposition that is struggling to maintain some spaces of political debate and a government that controls the entire machinery, the repressive machinery of Venezuelan authorities and government, then it's an impossible conversation. 
to be able to actually have a negotiation with Guaido or anyone else, you have to force the regime to sit at the negotiating table. And for that, you need much more than the inspiration that Guaido generated at that time. You need very strong and concerted international pressure, and we can talk more about that. But, but I think it's important to understand like the context in which Guaido appeared and the 50 or so governments that support Guaido are governments that support democracy in Venezuela. Now we are at a moment where you know, that continues to be the objective of many democratic leaders and organizations internationally. The big question today is how do you do that? Because Maduro orchestrated elections without any international oversight. No one really believes that, you know, the results are the results that they say happen. They have now a friendly national assembly. So suddenly they now want to work with a national assembly that's there, which is made up of a government allies. Um, and, you know, what do you do now? You know, what's the space that the opposition has to push for that pressure, regardless of who's in charge? so that there is a political negotiation. And I would separate that from the humanitarian situation because while this political struggle continues and you know whether who's a president and who has power and who have, doesn't have power, people are dying. So the need for international humanitarian aid and pressure to ensure the aid reaches the people in need should be a separate discussion from the political discussion about how do we have free and fair elections in Venezuela and how do we return that country back to democracy? You want to jump in on that, Max? Yeah, no, I, uh, I absolutely agree with everything that Tamana said. I think getting to that last point about the humanitarian crisis on one hand and the political issue on the other, um, you know, in some ways they're obviously very much related, but there has to be a separation between those discussions because there is humanitarian aid that is nonpartisan that can go through various NGOs through the UN that is there that is um, that is important toward alleviating the humanitarian crisis that's going on. That is first and foremost. I mean, the amount of suffering that is going on right now is unbelievable, and I think um, most people, and that's part of what we try to do in our documentary, is show both a close-up look at it when you look at characters like Randall or Nixon who suffered torture, who had to being displaced, but also understanding the scale. You know, Randall is just one of, I think four, I, honestly, the number is moved so quickly, but there's about like 4 million, 1 million and change in Colombia and refugees, which is what they are, refugees who are forced to um, be displaced and find new ways of living in other countries. And so, that is um, part of what we try to do in documentaries, make that feel very real, um, but it's also very hard. And, and it, these things often get mixed up with politics. And I think we saw that in the film, especially around the, the attempt to bring humanitarian aid in the country, right? Um, even though it is great, you know, Guaido made a big part of his whole campaign toward help alleviating the humanitarian crisis. And so, Again, those two things were conflated in that moment, um, you know, and there was there was there was a lot of um, back and forth about whether or not that was the right thing to do at the time, which is fine, you know, but I think it's important um, when we talk about what's going on and when we look at possible solutions that we do our best to separate um, the, the fixing of democracy in Venezuela with uh, addressing the humanitarian crisis and I know a lot of people will go to say that continuing or fixing the humanitarian crisis staves off the sort of urgency of fixing democracy, right? Like a lot, I think there's a, a large group of vocal part of the opposition that says, no, in order to fix the long-term humanitarian crisis, long-term issues, we need to fix the governmental political problem. And, and I think that, that there's some truth to that. Um, but we can't have a situation or we have to do the best we can in the situation where we have, you know, like we're looking in Colombia, which is a, an economy and, and the entire region is suffering as a result of COVID right now. Right. And so, you know, we can't, it's really difficult for countries like Colombia and for even countries to take on a million plus refugees and try to do so in a way that those million plus refugees are going to be okay. You know, you're seeing horrible health outbreaks occurring on the borders of these countries. You're seeing, a lot of issues with uh, Venezuelans trying to find jobs. And so 
that requires international assistance. That should not be political, and that you know, and that's really important to, to emphasize. And, and I think Tamada will say and discuss how much effort has been made on that, and, and or how much um, progress has been made on that front, um, because it's not it's not the same situation. Yeah, but just to add to what Max is saying, um, so in terms of numbers, actually, the latest numbers are that five point five million Venezuelans have fled the country. That's nearly, you know, to give the audience an idea, that's nearly 20% of the population. So it's a very big deal. Um, and in terms of the humanitarian discussion and politics, of course they are linked. And they are largely linked because the regime has used aid as a political tool, as we were discussing before. Um, but I think that it's important to separate the reasons why Venezuela got here from the mechanisms we have to alleviate the pain that people are suffering today. So if we talk about the reasons, there is an absolutely no way you can make a distinction because, you know, as I said earlier, this is a man-made crisis. This is not the consequence of a natural disaster. This is because authorities have hidden the extent of the problem. They don't publish epidemiological data. They have harassed doctors and journalists who, and humanitarian actors who are doing something about the situation. Um, so it, it's not uh, the consequence of U.S. unilateral sanctions and you know imperialism. But when you talk about how do you solve this, the only way to get aid to people in need is apolitically. So it doesn't matter if you support or you don't support the regime. If you're hungry, you should be able to have access to aid and you know one in three venezuelans are food insecure right now it's a lot of people it's millions of people who need this support so i think it's important i, I would make that distinction between why we are where we are and what should we do about it starting now and yeah. you know as max said there has been some progress in terms of aid delivery and the my sense is that the only reason there has been some progress is because of the exposure and how bad the situation is. And the Maduro folks have felt the pressure to accept some humanitarian aid to reach the country just because they can't do it on their own and people are dying and they need to control it. Uh, we do welcome your questions. If you have a question, you can text it to 330-541-5794. You can also tweet that question at the City Club. I'm already getting some of them. Uh, maybe the first one for uh, Tamara. Uh, the question, we, we mentioned this a little bit, but has the pandemic exacerbated the crisis in Venezuela? Uh, and yeah, uh, that's the first question, and then we'll move on to the second. Yeah. Yeah, so this person has read my mind because actually that's what I was gonna I was gonna say when I was talking earlier about the humanitarian emergency and the reasons and where we are. So Venezuela had a humanitarian emergency before the pandemic hit, and this is the situation. You know, it, it's a health system that had collapsed where we were already seeing the return of diseases that are preventable by vaccination, for example, that had been eradicated in Venezuela, and they were back. There was food insecurity. There was increasing levels of child malnutrition. And in this context, the pandemic hit. And you know, it's hit everyone all over the world. And in, the con in a country like Venezuela, this poses a lot of very specific problems. First, the lack of reliable data. In Venezuela, to, the last numbers I saw was something like 157,000 confirmed COVID cases and 1,800 deaths, which is ridiculous given the circumstances in the country. And, you know, authorized analysis estimate that the official count is under 25% of the actual numbers. Um, and this is because the government doesn't provide epidemiological data since 2017, so we can't trust their diagnosis of the problem. There are enormous shortages of water in Venezuela. So 70, approximately 70% 70 of hospitals in Venezuela have intermittent access to water. By now, we all know that hand washing is essential to prevent the spread of the virus. 
And what happens in Minnesota is that you have doctors who work in hospitals who can't wash their hands between seeing one one patient and the following one. Um, and then the other big element here is, as I said earlier, is that the regime continues to harass uh, doctors, health providers, journalists, humanitarian actors with prosecution, detention, uh, threats, just because they are actually exposing the reality on the ground. Um, in a country without sufficient medical supplies, there are scarcity of face masks, gloves, um, alcohol, everything you need to stop the pandemic. And you have um, a concerted effort by authorities to try to contain the amount of information that is actually published about the extent of the crisis. Um, so the pandemic has hit Venezuela very, very hard, and it just redoubles the urgency for humanitarian aid to reach Venezuela. Because not only because we should do this and care about the people inside Venezuela who are suffering this, but also because the exodus continues. And it's, you know, so long as the situation in Venezuela remains what it is, people will continue to leave. And if they continue to leave with COVID, this poses a health risk, not only for Venezuela, but also for neighboring countries. Max, this question for you. Uh, and at the end of the film, you do give a shout out to all of the people who helped you uh, gain footage. Uh, but this question is, how did you get access to people in situations featured in the film without being detected by Maduro or his administration? Were you ever targeted during filming? And I'll add a third part of it. I was very interested uh, in you speaking with um, the Maduro regime and you had kind of a, official supporters of him in the film. And I thought that was really interesting that you got access like that. I, I wonder how that worked out. Yeah, that's a that's a very uh, so that's a very tricky question, especially when, uh, like you know, as you notice, we had to make in one of our in our credits, we were in in some individuals who were involved in it, but mostly we they had to go unnamed because of the security risk to them, and I think that part of the reason we were able to um, collect and get so much access is how much under the radar we uh, strove to be. Um, and part of that decision was Nelson and I as directors having to direct from afar. Um, and, and really that meant relying and empowering the teams down in Venezuela who, A, lived the crisis and the political situation day in and day out. Um, and as videographers having to work and having to document, understood how to operate within the country with the security forces in ways that were clandestine um, and that did not lead to too much of their uh, of their harassment. Um, to answer that question, whether or not we had any security issues, we nothing, nothing, nothing very, nothing major. I'll just say that um, there was de definitely some situations where we got some unwanted attention, and we had to deal with that. Um, but but nothing um, to the point where anyone's safety was uh, was really in jeopardy. And so that you know we're very thankful for that. Um, and, and and that was a. Uh, it's almost like it was like threading the needle, so to speak, um, in terms of luck, uh, having been able to record for so many years in the country and with so much um, insecurity that we were able to get, get away with that. Um, I think to answer the question about access, again, um, that had a lot to do with using local teams and who had been involved and been on the ground for so long uh, to build these relationships over multiple years. Even though we did include some uh, Chavistas and supporters of Maduro, um, and we did get that one official connection. That was um, that was very hard to come by. Uh, honestly, we wanted to go a little bit further and a little bit deeper um, into that, um, but that just proved too unsafe uh, for for our for our team, and we didn't want to really push them in a situation like that. I think if you look at the way we look at and the characters we chose, we chose a lot of our, a lot of our characters and a lot of what we told the story we told was um, dictated by safety concerns. So uh, so I think some people have asked, you know, well, you know, it would have been cool to talk more to some of the official politicians um, and then, and, and, you know, maybe some people higher up in the in the Maduro regime. But that just um, from a safety perspective was just impossible for us. Um, so the access that we did get, though, we felt very good. And I think 
looking at Randall and Randall's parents, because Randall's parents were the probably the most overt or best example of, of Chavistas and Maduro supporters and what they feel and how they believe. That was a great opportunity for us to get uh, some insight into the perspective and um, a ground level idea of what happened and why people still were, are so loyal. Um, I think one thing that uh, Tamana mentioned earlier was the fact that there was, a, because of the rising price of oil, because of these immense social programs that are built under Chavez, there was a period of time where a lot of services and a lot of help was able to be given to a large group of the population that suffered for many, many years um, due to the massive economic uh, inequality. And uh, Randall's mother was the recipient of a, a surgery, a very expensive surgery, which we talk about in the film, um, that was completely covered by the government. And because of that action that was done, even though, you know, that's something that that's something that can't be offered anymore, that inspired long-term loyalty toward um, the regime. And that is, you know, that is how a lot of people feel, you know, and, and I think understanding that is crucial to understanding why the country is so divided and why there's still that sense of loyalty. Because in many ways, you could argue that um, Randall's mother owes her life to that surgery and to that ability. And so, you know, at what point do you um, do you let that go? So, so yeah, safety wise, it was crazy. It, it was really important to allow our teams to operate with autonomy and to give them the the ability to make decisions as to what was safe and what wasn't. Um, we had in order to get footage out of the country. You know, we wouldn't. None of our team members traveled. We always gave it to a third party, unrelated, hidden in an encrypted drive in a suitcase. You know. And then we would be watching that footage, you know, months after it had been taken because sending things over the internet, the unreliability of internet and power just made it un impossible. Um, really, yeah. So I think the way we were able to do it was safety first. And, you know, maybe it would have been easier in, in other ways to, you know, be sending things over the internet or to be um, in country ourselves because it's just more of a less, less of a lag time between getting the footage and seeing what was going on and being able to review and make creative decisions. Um, but I think we wouldn't have been able to operate for as long as we did without, um, if we had done something like that. So, so yeah. Thank you. Uh, this question also for you, Max, uh, even though a number of characters that you followed uh, were looking to leave uh, Venezuela by the end of the film, uh, this question specifically about the founder of the Green Helmets, uh, Federica Davila. Mm. Do you know if she's still working on the ground? Is she kind of still involved in the movement? Yes. Um, the answer is she's still in Venezuela. Um, she's still working in um, one of the hospitals in Caracas uh, currently, um, continuing to you know, do what she can. She's no longer part officially or she doesn't work as directly with the Green Cross anymore. She's you know, she's graduated from med school and she's more working in a hospital right now. So her, you know, what she's doing day to day has changed significantly, but um, her effort uh, and her, her ultimate mission to basically uh, provide what healthcare you can and, and medical services to as many people as possible, that hasn't changed. And, and she's still there. Yeah, she's, she has been on a few of these, a uh, few, a few, um, been able to make time or make, uh, and also with the internet, uh, be available for some of these conversations. But that's been very difficult. Um, but she's still working really hard, and you know, for her, and I don't want to speak for her, but I think for her, she, she's always has, and in our film, she always, she did as part of the Green Cross, and she still is trying to keep political distance from her and the politics. For her, it's much more about like, listen, you know, politics be what they may. People need healthcare, people need attention, and so that's really what she's focusing on now, um, and does every day, and in, in getting those supplies for, for internationally or from wherever to to uh, to provide that attention. Uh, Tamara, uh, two questions for you. First, about uh, Wang Guaido specifically. Is his time over, do you think, in the spotlight of Venezuela, especially with some countries no longer recognizing him as the legitimate interim president? And that's the second question. You said two. Um, well, those are two together. So we'll, we'll take them together. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, look, I think, in, as I said, there has been enormous controversy about 
who's the president of Venezuela, the most important thing I would say was that Juan Guaido was able to group the entire opposition and put them on the same page to fight for a democracy in Venezuela. And that's the most important thing that the opposition should be worried about. Um, and, you know, I don't know what Juan Guaido's future is in politics or in Venezuela moving forward. I do know that he's made that contribution and that I wish that the Venezuelan opposition, as everyone else who cares for democracy and human rights in Venezuela, um, focuses on that and not on, you know, who's the face and what's the name people are talking about. Uh, thank you. Well, I will give you one more question uh, here. Uh, in the film, we do see a testimony of Venezuelans uh, to the Organization of American States. The question is, what do you think it would take to get more action on the part of the international community in Venezuela? What's going to create momentum, perhaps, even just to deal with the immense humanitarian crisis? Thank you. So I would separate the answer in two because I think the humanitarian angle is different from the accountability one. In terms of the humanitarian response, things have changed on the ground over the past couple of years, I would say. You know, some time ago, people didn't even acknowledge how bad the situation was in the country. Um, in 2019, we published a report with experts from John Hopkins University documenting the humanitarian emergency in Venezuela. And we ended up presenting our findings in uh, the first Security Council meeting at the United Nations that officially talked about the humanitarian situation in Venezuela. And after that meeting, for the first time, UN Secretary General Guterres acknowledged that 7 million Venezuelans were in need of humanitarian aid. And since then, they've appointed a humanitarian coordinator. The UN has adopted a UN humanitarian response plan. Um, and that has led to an increase in humanitarian aid into the country. Um, it's not enough because the needs are enormous, but it is much more than it's ever reached Venezuela before. One very specific thing that is needed today in terms of what can we do to make that delivery aid better in addition to more funds is ensuring that there's authorization for the World Food Program to deploy in Venezuela because the World Food Program has the logistical capacity to distribute aid inside the country in a country where gas shortages is a big issue um, so that the aid can actually reach the interior of the country where the situation is much, much worse than in Caracas, the capital. In terms of accountability for human rights abuses, you talk about the testimony before the OAS and obviously attention by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and the Organization of American States is important. But I would say there have been two key developments in the international community. One was the creation by the Human Rights Council from the United Nations in Geneva of uh, what was called a fact-finding mission. This is an independent panel, expert panel, where um, they've evaluated human rights abuses in Venezuela, including extrajudicial executions, arbitrary arrests, torture, sexual abuse. And they concluded in a report they published last year, a very strong report, that there was evidence of crimes against humanity being committed in Venezuela, and they named specific people who bear responsibility, including Nicolás Maduro himself. That panel of experts has an extended mandate of two more years to investigate specific issues and gather evidence of these abuses, which just thickens the criminal file of what is of, of what has been happening in Venezuela. And the other very important development is what is happening today at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. This court has the mandate to investigate and prosecute the worst human rights crimes worldwide. They have decided that there is sufficient evidence that crimes against humanity are moving forward. The prosecutor at this court has decided that. And they are now at the final stages of their first level, which is called a preliminary examination. And the prosecutor herself has said that between now and mid-2021, they would decide whether they are moving forward 
into this investigation, which, as I said, is very, very relevant because this court is a court that has the power to actually prosecute individuals implicated in the worst crimes. Um, that Those two developments have been very important. And then the other thing I would add just to finish is that there have been many, many countries in the European Union, the United States, Canada, Latin America that have imposed what are called targeted sanctions, which means canceling the visas, freezing the assets of specific individuals implicated in the repression and in corruption. And that sends a very, very powerful message that these people are not welcome in democratic countries around the world. And all of this increases the pressure to, as we discussed earlier, force the regime to sit at the negotiating table. I'm not sure who uh, wants to take this one. I'll throw it to Max, uh, maybe first. Uh, the questions about the military, we do see in the film some members of the military defecting, but clearly not enough uh, to make um, regime change. Can you talk about the role of the military? So the question was, Antonio, I'm not sure, can, can you, I couldn't hear you earlier, but the question is about the role in the military, yes, of in, in what's going on humanitarian politically. I think it was, yeah, the role of the military generally. Generally. Oh, and we lost Tony altogether. Okay, well, I can uh, I can definitely jump in there since that since we kind of got the story and we can wait for Tony to get back um, while I answer. Um, so the role of the military is a very, very, very difficult thing to discuss. Um, it's obviously impossible. It, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to discuss because there's so many levels to it um, within the military. And, and and so as a result, you can't necessarily, I don't think, at least talk about the people, the sort of a lower level sort of foot soldiers, if you will, in the same breath as you talk to people like Padrino Lopez, right? And so these are very different. They're very different. Um, but there are some things I think generally you could say a, um, Hugo Chavez, what, if, if you know about the history of Venezuela, was a former member of the military um, and as a result had developed and cultivated a very close relationship with military leadership and had their support. And that was really crucial toward the government and toward the sort of structure that he imposed um, or that he put together uh, around his government and around the power they were able to exert. I think looking at it now, um, you know, those calls for by Leopoldo and by Guaido for the military to turn really didn't pan out um, the way I suppose that they had wanted. I think as of this moment, we only have just under 1,500 confirmed um, members of the military that had sort of turned uh, turned over, if you, want to, if you will. And the reason I think that there's a lot, I, I, I think Tomato would probably help, could help me here, but a, um, a lot of the members of the senior military are very much, um, or it's, it's a very corrupt system and it's very closely tied to the interests of the Maduro regime. There have been many cases where the military has been, especially senior and middle to senior leadership have been benefiting directly from controlling of resources like food and toilet paper. So, and, and become um, uh wealthy and and, 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 and and by the result, by the ability to control these resources and sell them on the black market and what have you. So there's that element. I think on the lower ends um, within the military and so the, the foot soldiers or the, the sort of lower level um, members of the military, what you have are two things. One, it's a similar issue of survival. Um, as members of the military, you do get, uh, from my understanding, um, some access to food and, 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 and preferential access to some of these resources, mostly because you're connected to a lot of the corrupt apparatuses that are controlling their distribution. Um, and so there are benefits to that and uh, safety and security of you and your family. Um, you know, individuals who decide to come over their families and are, um, and are pretty extended and are subject to risk. I think a really interesting example of this, which we didn't cover in the documentary, but uh, the former um, Attorney General uh, Luisa Ortega, under both Chavez and Maduro, had a, at a certain point in 2018 decided to to defect the Maduro regime, and it was a very big um, 
it was very big. It was very it was big news all around the world because she had served both under Chavez and Maduro um, for a very long time, and even she said, you know, this is this enough is enough. And as a result of that decision, not only was she, but all, all members of her family were persecuted by the security forces and intelligence forces of Venezuela. And she's a very high profile, very visible person. So if people like her, people like Leopoldo Lopez are suffering this type of persecution, despite the fact that they have such a, a much bigger public um, eye on them, just imagine the implications for people who don't, or for individuals of the military or of the government who don't necessarily have as much of a, of a publicly visible um, uh, uh, life, I guess, that uh, in some ways may protect them. Um, just imagine what those people are sort of at risk at in this situation. So I, I think when looking at the military, it's really hard to make any blanket categorical statements. You have to kind of understand the various levels of the military and what the uh, motivations are for people in, in, in various parts of it. Apologies for uh, dropping out there for a second. Uh, that's how you know it's live. Uh, <laughs> but um, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here. Uh, so I wonder if both of you just want to comment uh, on the toughest question of them all. What do you think comes next? Do you think there's going to be a coup? Do you think there's sufficient external pressure to make change in Venezuela? Or is it much too early to tell? Uh, Max, you want to start and then Tamara? Man, I, was, I think both Tamara and I, it's, it's really difficult, honestly. And there's no way I would even begin to hazard a prediction as to what's going what's going to happen. Um, I think maybe earlier, you know, maybe two, three years ago, I, I would have been, I would have had like a, a, would have tried at least. But I think right now, especially in the midst of COVID, especially with everything that's going on internationally and the stresses to the international community that are already existing, it's so hard for me to even hazard a guess as to what the future looks like um, for Venezuela and, and what the international community is going to be able to do. I do believe in, in Hefs, and we have seen, and I, this is more Tomatoes territory for sure, but the roles of these NGOs and the international community toward, you know, like what's going on at the ICC, toward continuing um, the procedural and important sanctions and efforts toward putting that pressure. But how long it takes or what that pressure yields, I think is really difficult to tell at this point, um, especially when we look at um, not only the scale of the problem, but also just the resiliency and the, the, um, of the uh, regime um, to stay in power. And so I think it's really hard to, it's really hard to make a guess, but I do believe uh, deeply, um, not only in um, the abilities of organizations like the NGOs that, to bring food in to, to make important strides in that, but also in figures like Juan Guaido and Leopoldo Lopez in the opposition, in their commitment um, for as long as it takes to achieve the change that they need um, to sort of uh, make Venezuela the country that it you know that it once was, one of the fastest growing in economies in the world, and basically the place that most many Latin Americans immigrated to. You know, um, so I think that, that I do have uh, immense faith in that um, continuing to be the case. I think in the middle of a worldwide pandemic where we don't know anything about where the world is going, it's uh, it's difficult to predict what is going to happen in Venezuela. But what I would say is that the despite how difficult the situation is today, um, the regime hasn't been as isolated as it is today. Never. You know, it's it really is a moment where the international community and key actors, as I was talking about earlier, are committed to seeing how to make this transition possible. How and when that is going to happen is very difficult. Um, and, and because it's also, the world has changed, you know, the experience in Latin America was different in the 70s and 80s when there was transition to democracy in Argentina or Uruguay or Chile. But what we do know from those experiences is that accountability is essential. So, you know, some level of accountability and holding people responsible for the crimes that have been happening in Venezuela and putting so much people in 
suffering due to the humanitarian situation is necessary? To me, the key question is who is going to be held accountable and who is going to be able to be part of this negotiation? And that negotiation inevitably is going to mean talking to the bad guys. Um, and one of the big differences between Chavez and Maduro is that Maduro doesn't hold absolute power on everyone inside Venezuela as Chavez did in the past. So how can you break that? And who can you get these conversations going with so that it actually happens is the big question to answer in terms of the future of Venezuela. Thank you for that answer. And thank you both for being here. This was really a fantastic conversation over the last hour. Uh, thanks also to all of you for joining us today uh, for this forum on the documentary film Alakaye and the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. We've been talking with Max Caicedo, uh, one of the two directors and producers of Alakaye, also Tamara Taratsyuk Broner. She's acting deputy director of the Americas Division for Human Rights Watch. We thank them again. Today's forum is presented in collaboration with the Cleveland International Film Festival and the Cleveland Council on World Affairs. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week. Thanks to support from Bank of America, Key Bank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can find more information about supporting the City Club at cityclub.org. I'm Tony Ganser. Thanks so much for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.